0: I've driven about 500 kilometres south of Sydney and I've driven into the main street of Holbrook, New South Wales. Now as you're coming in, you know, there's a lot of dryness at the moment but there's still a lot of happy sheep eating grass in the paddocks and the canola is actually flowering at the moment so you get these amazing sweeping scenes of crisp yellow as you're coming into town and it's a really classic one street country town and it used to be the weirdest thing when you come in that there's this massive black submarine and it's really out of place but now there's something much stranger happening and that's why I'm here I've come out to see the site of Australia's first cryonic center which is being built here if you can imagine it's basically a big ice graveyard and uh, people are paying $1,500 to have their body frozen after they die in the hopes that one day they can be resurrected. And at first it will just be a warehouse um, and they're gonna add an office and other functions as they go. And the managing director was telling me that there's going to be about eight to 10 uh, cryostats, which are basically these massive tubes and each one holds four uh, whole human bodies So when I'm looking at this piece of land uh, here, there's going to be up to, at first, 30 bodies being able to be stored here. And uh, at the moment, there's 20 investors of Southern Cryonics, and each one is throwing about 50 grand at this project in the hopes that this facility will be up and running shortly. They need to be able to keep the bodies chilled at minus 196 degrees in liquid nitrogen for decades, uh, possibly hundreds of years. And that is quite shocking because right now I've got so many flies in my face (laughs) it's really really hot I definitely think I'm getting a sunburn being out here Uh, and it's very dry I don't know if I was living in town that I'd want to share this uh, nice part of New South Wales with anyone else let alone 30 corpses but anyway as for now I think that I'd rather enjoy the pub and the greenery and the fresh air while I'm still alive
1: for Curious GPs. I'm Felicity. And I'm Francine. So nice visit to
0: Holbrook? Yeah, look, it was pretty pretty nice to drive through and spend the weekend. And um, you know, they've got a lot of things going for that town, but
1: I don't know that I'd want to spend eternity there frozen. So it was a bit of a lucky coincidence that Francine was in the area over the long weekend because we're doing a podcast episode on cryocrazes this week. Yeah so Ice is, as we know, an age-old anesthetic,
0: a anti-inflammatory agent that you know probably always had a place in medicine. Oh yeah, who hasn't thrown a pack of frozen peas on a sprained ankle or had a wart frozen off? But the medical magic of ice crystals has had a marketing do-over in recent decades. And
1: in this episode, we're going to be lifting the freezer lid and having a look at what evidence there really is to back up some of these cryo-crazes. But before we get to that, we just want to welcome everyone back to the new season of the TMR podcast. We've got a lot of really cool ideas lined up for this season.
0: Yeah, and some of them include the regular stuff from news to deep dive clinical stories. And we're also looking to bring you more analysis and insights on medical politics Uh, But we're going to keep it real by talking directly to GPs always about what's on their minds.
1: And we also know a lot of GPs are really interested to know more about uh, running a successful business. Um, So we'll be chasing more experts to come on the show and share their knowledge.
0: And of course, we're going to have a whole lot of quirky medical facts in there too. And um, live updates from all the important medical conferences. So whether you're there or not, um, we will be there.
1: (laughs) Yep, all of them.
0: (laughs) And of course, we're going to throw in all the quirky medical facts that we can find as well. But uh, let's put that on hold for now and get back into the freezer with the cryo craze story.
1: Yeah, so you've heard a little bit about cryonics, which was uh, Francine's trip to Holbrook. And I hate to be a party pooper, but if you jump into the freezer when you die, most experts agree that you're never, ever coming back to life.
0: Yeah, and basically when you look at where cryonics is at the moment, it is nothing but pseudoscience and, you know, a bit of wishful thinking and maybe, you know, a bit of self-importance that the world will want to be, you know, blessed with your presence forever.
1: Yeah, a thousand years from now when we have the technology to revive you. Um, So the problem with cryonics is while you can go and free something tiny like a human egg, Uh, when you go and freeze an entire body it becomes a very complicated process um, and the freezing process actually damages the tissue um, so much that resurrection is basically impossible and they try and take steps to minimize the destruction of tissue including emptying the body of all the blood and replacing it with vitrification solution which is chemicals that prevents ice crystallization but unfortunately these chemicals are actually toxic to human tissue and vitrification causes fractures in the brain um, because the cooling rates aren't even across the tissue um, so yeah there's little hope that you're ever coming back
0: but as you know as with everything in the kind of realm of the impossible uh, there's still a lot of diehard fans out there in the cryonic space and you know they'll tell you that this fancy nanotech in the future is somehow going to make it possible to regenerate that tissue that at the moment we would declare as lost
1: And there are quite a few supporters of this idea. So there's around 15,000 Americans who are planning to have their heads, so their severed heads, (laughs) or their bodies frozen when they die, and around 250 who have already been cryopreserved. And mostly
0: people, you know, they might have a bit of money to throw around um, as they're heading into their later years, and they might just be doing it out of pure curiosity
1: it starts to get a bit freaky when people pay to have themselves decapitated after they die and have their head stuck in an icebox. Um, and the reason they do this is because it's a lot cheaper than freezing an entire body. Well, yeah, you have
0: to be a little bit, you know, economical about your after death, I guess, if you want to keep yourself around and bring yourself um, back to life. And, uh, of course, life after death is nothing without someone to share it with. Uh, So Felicity and I found a Russian company online uh, called CryoRus And this is an interesting one because it offers pet cryopreservation uh, But the catch is this costs tens of thousands of dollars
1: Yeah, we were totally in stitches when we were reading their website Um, So here's a little clip uh, in our cryo storage already await five dogs five male cats and one female cat and also three birds a titlark and a goldfinch
0: yeah so how's that for the audacity of hope um imagine being convinced that your beloved pet bird uh, you know could be transformed into this ice phoenix and you'll both you know rise from the dead together it's, it's beautiful um so when we saw how much money was in this we naturally were kind of looking at you know the freezer in the office and we're thinking you know is it possible that you could open like a little underground cryonics business and offer to freeze people's pets so um we've got another four cryocrazies crazies to talk about um plus the first piece of sponsored content a little bit later on in the episode which is looking at
1: new tech uh for spotting melanoma but first cryocraze craze number two So if the ticking of that biological clock gets too loud, why not just stick it in the freezer? That's the proposition being made by egg freezing companies to women in their 30s who want to delay pregnancy for social reasons.
0: One thing though with this that's kind of rarely mentioned is the fact that each egg that is frozen through this process has only around a 6-12% to chance of ever turning into a baby.
1: Unfortunately, the women who are handing over around $7,000 for this procedure often have rather unrealistic expectations.
0: And many women, about 16%, according to a study by the University of California, actually come to regret their decision to freeze their eggs by around their mid-30s.
1: And you don't often hear about the process, but it's actually quite an elaborate one to freeze your eggs. So first, women have to self-inject hormones for a fortnight to stimulate oocyte maturation. The eggs are then retrieved from the ovaries using an ultrasound guided probe under a light general anesthetic. Women produce around 10 mature eggs a month, so they need to repeat this process up to three times to get enough eggs for storage. You can imagine that's quite a draining process. Um, And I did the maths and it looks like around 9,000 Australian women chose to freeze their eggs for future use in 2016. So it's quite a lot of people who are are opting for this uh, process. So I guess you're thinking, um, what do you say to a patient when they ask about egg freezing? So we decided to go and ask Dr Magdalena Simonis. She's a GP with a special interest in reproductive health about this topic.
2: Okay, well, look, it's it's an increasingly interesting topic because more and more women present to the GP asking about egg freezing who are in a sort of a, an envir- a social setting where they're not in a relationship or can't, in their foreseeable future can't imagine themselves meeting Mr. Right, um, and the question of how to uh, have children comes into their mind. So one of the questions they ask is, you know, what do you know about egg freezing, and uh, what do you think I should do about this? Now the question really depends very much on their age. A lot of women have this unrealistic expectation that they can freeze their eggs at the age of 37, 8, 9, and 40, um, in the in the hope that one day they can have them inseminated and create an embryo that will survive. But that's actually a fallacy. The thing about eggs or oocytes, women are born with a really a fixed number of eggs. As we age, by our mid-20s to 30, you know that number declines precipitously. And from the age of 35 onwards, we've even got half of that amount again. So by the time you reach 40, you really have a very small number of eggs and the majority of them are not viable once frozen. Um, so the optimal age for freezing, somewhere between 30 and 35, so once they reach 35, they're just at the cutoff point. This requires an outlay of money of around 10 dollars to $12,000 on average if they do uh, agree to undertake this. A single embryo from a frozen egg stands around a 20 to 35% chance of developing to a pregnancy. Success rates are around that, so it's around 20 to 35% for a 35-year-old woman to successfully produce an embryo from her own eggs. So I don't think that women have all the information when they come asking about this, so it's really up to us as GPs to inform them that the statistics aren't in their favour. There are a couple of tests that a GP can do to help a woman um, sort of assess her suitability for egg freezing, and one of them is undertaking, of course, a full gynecological history, a social history, and uh, and then working out according to her cycles um, and whether or not she does have regular cycles, uh, what her anti malarian hormone level is like. So the AMH, that's sort of a marker. It's it's not the it's not the be all and end all in terms of testing. I mean, your AMH is a is a hormone level that. Um, tells us about the quantity of eggs but not the quality of your eggs. So it doesn't tell us how long your eggs will survive and whether or not they're they're viable, you know, through insemination. And couple that with an ultrasound. So I think that the key information that a GP needs to give women is that age is the key factor. And it's a really unfortunate thing to be the GP in the position to hand over that really unfortunate truth so that is something perhaps when we have our general women's health checkups with our patients that we should raise with women we live in an age now where uh, it's more socially acceptable to be a single parent and as women um, find themselves in careers this is a good conversation to have when we're having our women's health checks and uh, discussions around fertility down the track so I think that The key points for any GP to take with them from this would be that egg freezing has a place, it has made a difference to a proportion of women, but it's not the answer to the ageing woman who wants to have a child. She may well need to look for donor eggs if she is over 38 and uh, wishes to have uh, an IVF baby.
1: That's a bit of a tricky area to
0: navigate isn't it (laughs) yeah it definitely is okay so this next one is a little bit more straightforward so cryo craze number three Uh, we have whole body cryotherapy
1: yeah so there's absolutely no evidence that this one helps with anything but it's it's a pretty amusing idea i think okay so just to put you in the mood let's transport ourselves to one of these cryo salons Um, Mm, that sounds (laughs) fan for yourself yeah absolutely Um, so liquid nitrogen mist chills the air you the patient remove your fluffy bathrobe and step inside a hypercooled chamber your teeth start to chatter as you're exposed to temperatures of minus 70 degrees and then three minutes later it's all over and the clinic swipes $80 off your debit card that
0: is quite a lot of money to be in severe pain Um, well it's
1: it's three minutes
0: (laughs) Um,
1: also, people don't say that it's painful. People say that it's it's refreshing. I actually looked it up. It's the same temperature as the dark side of the moon, which I think that they should put on their advertising. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So um, that's whole
0: body cryotherapy for you. And it's supposedly a treatment for you know all ills, uh, including muscle soreness, jet lag, hangovers, depression, migraine, fibromyalgia and arthritis. And some users say that the extreme cold produces a feeling of
1: euphoria and alertness. And several famous athletes in the US and lots of Hollywood stars swear by it. Although I read in the news that at least two US sports people suffered from frostbite after they ill-advisedly wore wet socks during cryotherapy.
0: Yeah, and the popularity of cryotherapy uh, didn't appear to be punctured, by the first fatal accident in 2015, uh, that happened when a 24-year-old employee of a Las Vegas cryotherapy salon um, actually unfortunately died of suffocation due to low oxygen levels in the chamber at the time.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the only one so far, but yeah, can't imagine these all of these clinics are completely safe. So cryoclinics claim that the cold shock provokes a kind of biological danger response. So this triggers blood oxygenation, an adrenaline rush, vasodilation. And there's no clinical evidence for these miraculous health benefits, of course. Um, But you can kind of see the logic, maybe. Yeah, so a 2015 Cochrane review actually found out that there
0: was not enough evidence to support the use of whole body cryotherapy uh, for either preventing or treating muscle soreness uh, after exercise. So that kind of, um, in the old fashioned way, that was just a nice bath. After a, after a hard
1: game. And the FDA recently issued a warning about this kind of therapy, um, but we haven't heard a peep out of the TGA yet. Okay, so now we're just going to
0: take a little break from this cryo-crazy story and share with you a sponsored interview,
1: and it's going to run for about five minutes. So for our sponsored segment this week, the Medical Republic caught up with Dr. Maram Siddiqui. She's the CEO of MetaOptima, a company that uses AI to screen for melanoma.
0: And Dr. Siddiqui has a PhD in computer science and she started the company in Canada and now has an office in Sydney as well.
1: So she was just in Sydney for the week, so TMR went over to their offices to have a little
3: chat. Thanks, Dr. Siddiqui, for coming on the show. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much for having me here. Uh, It's a real pleasure. Um, My name is Mariam. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Medoptima. Uh, By training, I'm computer scientist. My PhD was in uh, medical imaging computing science, uh, and also I had a scholarship training in dermatology. So I was lucky to be trained in dermatology and skin cancer with a computing science background, and I was shocked how archaic was the system. I saw a big potential for the technology to play an important role and started the company after finishing my postdoc and PhD, um, PhD and postdoc research in skin cancer diagnostics and dermatology. And what was this archaic problem space that you needed to solve? Um, As a computer science PhD, when you enter um, one of the top centres in the world, you expect to have systems, um, digital solutions at least, the minimum really, um, to document and to help with the diagnostic decisions, with um, treatment decisions for our patients. But I was really surprised and shocked that there was nothing available. Uh, Coming from the background of uh, PACS systems, uh, MRI, radiology, I had seen hospital systems, digitized systems that we use for imaging and documentation and um, communication. But in dermatology, there was nothing like that. It was very archaic, very manual, very subjective. And um, yeah, we were still documenting things like in just text format. Imagine explaining an image in text, like in two sentences. Uh, for patient file and um, didn't have really um, optimal workflow and documentation. So we were not really documenting our patient uh, conditions and uh, everything was on paper. Um, And even the EMR systems in the digital space, they don't support really imaging much. So um, there was a big need to digitize the industry first and then look at the data and say how we can uh, bring insight from our historical data to help with diagnostic and therapeutic decisions for our patients. So that was the archaic, uh, basically, industry <laughs> that I was sure there is going to be a technology solution that can solve the problem, can help our doctors, can help our patients, can bring the collective knowledge of thousands of doctors, millions of patients, to help my patients sitting in front of me. And that was just the, you know, um, the starting point. And also, um, I was also shocked to learn that skin cancer was the most common cancer. And two in three Australians develop skin cancer in their lifetime. And the technology that could help that, with that problem was really something that ignited this um, idea to start building a real, bold solution, not just the PhD thesis that, that will be basically in the library. So we want to have something meaningful that can help patients and doctors. So how do your particular products work? Um, we have uh, two products. Uh, one is our imaging devices, uh, which is just a dermoscope, dermatoscope, digital dermatoscope, smart that can actually be used with, um, with mobile devices um, to help with imaging quality documentation and quality imaging, and it's affordable and scalable. Um, basically, medical devices are designed to be expensive, but this was designed to be affordable and quality. Uh, so that is our Molescope device, which is um, used for imaging, and the main platform, the main product is our Derm Engine platform, which is device agnostic. It works with other devices in the market as well. It is designed to uh, serve all of our stakeholders in the patient journey. All the way from patients from home to primary care to our GPs, to dermatologists, to our dermatopathologists, dermatosurgery, and dermato-oncologists. and at the end, it's like every single person who is in the patient journey serving that patient can use the platform. That was a big vision we had um, to be very inclusive, to be device agnostic, and also serve all of our other partners uh, in, in the industry, in the market. So, yeah, our system is plug and play other devices can connect, uh, we also connect with other softwares and the vision is to digitize and connect the whole ecosystem. And how does that work? So starting with the patient, walking into the GP's practice, how does this technology get used and what's the process? Um, it's a very good question. Um, so In Australia, our GPs and frontline, they are dealing with this problem every day. That's why actually our primary care doctors in Australia are better than some of our derms in other countries, just because they see a lot of patients. But they don't necessarily have tools, um, affordable devices and platforms that can support them in what they do every day. As a patient, if I walk to my family physician office, my GP office, or my skin cancer doctor, um, they have different devices for imaging. They can use also our Monscope device. So they take photos of my skin. Um, the system is connected with their practice management system. So we integrate with over 90% of the market in Australia. Um, so the patient file is created from the practice management system. It's very easy for my doctor to just open my file in their engine. They can um, document my problems, my symptoms. They can take photos. And also um, use our AI tools that can help with faster documentation. Um, we have tools that are actually that are designed to help with educating doctors and training them based on historical data. This is one of our AI algorithms, and actually what it does, um, you can find similar cases to my case from a database of labeled images. These lim- images have clinical or pathology diagnosis, so my doctor will compare my spot with thousands of images in the database, and they can make informed decisions rather than guessing what this could be. It's One of the doctors told me it's like my intelligent textbook. It doesn't diagnose the case at all. It actually shows you similar cases, and it's your decision as a doctor to say, okay, I'm concerned about this, also listening to my patient. They have also this concern, so I will make a better informed decision. Um, So again, this is the implementation of AI in the um, clinical setting to make sure it's helping our doctors with what they do every day. So um, this is the current implementation of the system. There's actually more coming, (laughs) more intelligent, very exciting. But we made sure uh, the first implementation is helping our doctors in their real-life clinical practice.
0: A paper was published in Lancet Oncology that had some interesting information about the accuracy of these AI systems. And I I know they are not diagnosing, but how good are they at spotting melanoma when they see it?
3: Um, So the Lancet Oncology paper was... um, an independent study was not by us. That was a design that the study designed that basically looks at the images with labels and also uh, compares the quality or the accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity of the algorithms compared to human experts. But the, um, the accuracy for um, malignancy was actually both sensitivity and specificity for AI was higher than the human experts. However, This was a design for a study. It was not a real-life clinical setting. So although we are very excited about having the publication, one of the top journals, so I I don't think I can aim for a better publication, honestly. But actually, when it comes to real-life implementation, that is not enough. It shows the potential. It shows that the computer can learn from historical data and can help our doctors to make better decisions. But when it comes to real life, there is much more than that, that we need to consider in implementing this uh, solution. Um, That's why we started our prospective studies, which means now we are looking at the results of the AI system in the hands of doctors every day. And we are looking at the result, how much it is helping them that will be the true implementation evaluation and um, validation.
1: Okay welcome back Uh, and we're on to cryo craze number four.
0: Yeah this great uh, freezing listicle podcast. It's like a podsticle? (laughs) Not no. terrible. Okay. <laughs> All right.
1: So cryoliptolysis is a method of removing unwanted rolls of fat by freezing them off. Yeah, and it's, it makes
0: sense for the name because it's marketed as a safe alternative to liposuction, uh, which lipo in
1: the name, and it doesn't require scalpels or needles. So during the procedure, a machine sucks up a bulge of fat, it's a bit like a vacuum cleaner, uh, and exposes the <laughs> tissue to freezing temperatures for about an hour.
0: Uh, so the fat suction machine, (laughs) I'm going to call it, Uh, it basically makes the fat cells die at a faster rate than the rest of the tissue. And so after a few months, supposedly, the body clears the debris away and it reduces the amount of fat by around 10 to 25%, according to advertising. (laughs) So does it actually work,
1: Felicity? Well, surprisingly, it seems to work. Um, I mean, just keep in mind that 20% fat loss in one area of your body is... A really tiny amount so I like in terms of the cosmetic effect I don't know if it's that's pronounced Um, often people have to do multiple cycles of it to get the effect that they want Uh, but this idea of freezing fat away has actually been around for a really long time Um, so the phenomenon was first observed in the 1970s when two US doctors reported that children who sucked on icy poles for too long um, had this thing where their cheeks developed fat necrosis uh, and it was called popsicle paniculitis so the cool sculpting tech was developed about a decade ago, and it's now been used in over 5 million procedures worldwide. Cool scoping procedures
0: now cost about
1: $850, and
0: as to be expected, clients don't always come out looking the way that they hoped, uh, because there's many surface irregularities and also asymmetry can occur, so you'll be skinnier in one part of the body and not another, which... Sounds like a great way to spend almost a grand.
1: Yeah, so like half a flat stomach, half not, I don't know. So in some cases, people actually develop more fat in the area instead of less. Um, This complication is called paradoxical fat hyperplastia. And the manufacturer of cool-sculping machines estimates that this complication happens in around 0.025% of treatment cycles. But data from one Florida clinic shows that the actual rates are a little bit higher at 0.72%.
0: Yeah, and there's also been two independent systematic reviews of the method and both were quite positive. But of course, you know, freezing fat cells is purely cosmetic and, as we know, doesn't reverse any of the harm of unhealthy lifestyle or obesity um, and all the cardiovascular and diabetic risk that you might actually have under your skin.
1: And for anyone who's still with us, we're on to cryocraze number five. Um, And this is the last one, I promise. Um, And it's actually rather sensible. So this one
0: is the freezing of umbilical cord blood, and this can be done to preserve the stem cells just after a baby is born. Uh, So these stem cells can then go on to treat patients with leukaemia, like lymphoma, immune deficiencies, and metabolic storage diseases.
1: So once the baby is safely delivered and the umbilical cord is cut, hospital staff can extract the cord blood using a needle and freeze it in liquid nitrogen.
0: And this cord blood can be donated to a public bank where any patient in need uh, can obviously apply and use it and that includes uh, the donor baby and their siblings if they ever should need those stem cells in the future.
1: And it's relatively easy to find a match. So around 90% of patients find a suitable cord blood donor in Australia. But by choosing to use a public bank, the family obviously loses the exclusive right to use their cord blood.
0: By comparison, private companies can offer people complete control over their frozen cord blood, Uh, but it comes at a price. It's around $4,000, but that's over 25 years. And while it's believed that cord blood will offer some protection against rare diseases uh, as the child grows up, these private services are hardly ever actually used. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, so over the past decade, around 30,000 Australian families have chosen to freeze cord blood privately, but only six of these families, six out of 30,000, have ever actually needed to use the stem cells. Um, So that's one in 5,000 chance of ever getting a return on your investment.
0: So I guess before we clock out of this topic, and we're still on, you know cryocrasis and umbilical cord blood i want to bring up some very strange news that i read over the time that we're taking a break from the podcast um and that's that the record has now been broken for the oldest woman in the world to ever give birth uh it happened when a 74 year old indian woman uh gave birth to twins and the most shocking thing she went through menopause 30 years ago and basically the way that they do this is they use eggs frozen uh, from earlier in the life or donor eggs and she was on hrt the whole time as well and it brings up a lot of ethical considerations with ivf in a certain age group of women uh, because the ivf clinic in india who treated her i believe to have paid for their treatment because they knew that they'd be breaking a record if she went on to give birth yeah Hmm. um so she gave birth through c-section and as for the father well you know also Uh, an 80 year old man and apparently he was um, had to be admitted to hospital after the birth for separate health concerns Um, yeah it's just you can't make this stuff up
1: (laughs) that's crazy right so that's it for this week's episode next week we're back and we're talking to an expert about uh, why AI is not all it's cracked up to be And I know this expert has some rather amusing examples of how AI can stuff up in medicine, so that'll be fun to listen to. See you next time.